Shortly after Avram and family arrive in Eretz Yisrael, arrive in Canaan, they suffer a devastating famine in the land. And therefore Avram chooses to leave Eretz Yisrael to take his family and to go down to Egypt where they are hoping to secure provisions so that the family can be sustained. As they're approaching, Avram is very worried that the Egyptians will notice Sarah's beauty. If they know that they are married, they will kill Avram. And therefore he suggests to Sarah that she lie and say that in fact they are brother and sister, hopefully thereby sparing Avraham's life. In fact, that's exactly what happened in the sense of Sarah's beauty is clearly noticed. She's kidnapped, she's taken to Paro's palace, and she's only released after Hashem afflicts Paro and his whole household with a disease. The story ends with Paro being upset about Avram's subterfuge, banishing Avram and his household from Egypt. And this story, fascinating as it is, really presents two questions, which perhaps ultimately are one. Was it right for Avram to leave Eretz Yisrael? Who told him to do that? He had been told Lech Lecha to go to Eretz Yisrael, whoever said he had a right to leave. And secondly, and perhaps more problematic, how could Avram endanger Sarah's life? How could he put Sarah in such mortal danger? That's not what we would expect any husband to do, let alone somebody at Tzadik, a moral exemplar on the level of Avram. So really two questions that are in fact one, how can we understand, should we justify Avram's behavior? Is it possible that he made mistakes in this story? These questions, as powerful as they are, not surprisingly, therefore, lead to a very interesting machlokas in the Mefarshim. Ramban, very famously, as well as perhaps less well-known Rabbeinu Bachaye, but really he's echoing the same approach of the Ramban. Ramban says, yes, in fact, Avram made a mistake. It was a sin for him to leave Eretz Yisrael. He should have trusted HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that his family would have been okay, that Hashem would have found a way to take care of Avram and family despite the famine. Moreover, the Ramban adds very uh, ominously that because of this mistake where Avram chose to leave Eretz Yisrael, later his descendants will have no choice. They will forcibly be exiled from the land of Eretz Yisrael to Egypt, where unfortunately they will suffer, and ultimately that will go back to being a punishment for Avram's behavior in this parsha. This powerful critique of Ramban and Rabbi Mechaye is in opposite in opposition, I should say, to many other Mepharshim who defend Avram's decision to leave Eretz Yisrael. For example, the Abarbanel assumes that Avram did nothing wrong. After all, the famine and going down to Egypt are part of the famous ten disyono, the ten tests that Avram was tested with. And, says Abarbanel, since we have a tradition from Chazal that Avram passed all of these tests, how can we say that he sinned? Moreover, logically, he says, it's not fair to criticize Avram. He had no reason to think there was any prohibition in leaving Eretz Yisrael. Just because he was told to go once upon a time to Eretz Yisrael doesn't mean he's never allowed to leave. Moreover, we know the Torah itself says, It's a halacha and a Jewish value that life takes precedent in almost all situations. It certainly takes precedent over living in Eretz Yisrael. And given the fact that the Torah itself emphasizes in our parsha, the famine was exceedingly difficult. It wasn't just a a light famine. It was a heavy, painful, life-and-death famine. Therefore, it's understandable, says Abarbanel, that Avram had no other choice but to leave Eretz Canaan and go to Mitzrayim, and therefore he does not think it's fair to criticize Avram for that decision. In terms of the second question about putting Sarah in harm's way, here too, Ramban and Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar are critical of Avram's behavior. Here too, they say, he should have had more trust 
or bitochen in Hashem, and Hashem would have figured out a way to get them out of the problem. He should not have lied and put Sarah in such a difficulty in harm's way. But here too, as well, most other Mepharshim disagree with the critique of Ramban and Ben Rebbe and they defend Avram's behavior in one form or another. Both the Tur and the Abarbanel just kind of state categorically that it cannot be that Avraham made a mistake. He made the best of a difficult situation. Moreover, Abarbanel says, if Avraham had sinned, presumably Hashem would have told him that he made a mistake. And yet we're going to read shortly uh, thereafter in Parakaf that the next time they're traveling, Avram does the exact same thing. He tells Sarah once again to say he, that they're brother and sister. Moreover, Avram's own son Yitzhak does the same thing with his wife, with Rivka, which we'll read about in Parakavav. If it had been a sin, Hashem would have told them they never would have repeated the mistake. Yitzhak wouldn't have done it. The fact that we have this happening two other times in the next few Prakim indicates, says Abarbanel in his opinion, it must be that Avram did nothing wrong. Despite that assurance and that categorical statement by both Tur and Abarbanel, they don't really explain what Avram was actually thinking. Other Mepharshim, however, add that extra point. For example, the Cheskuni explains that Avram did nothing wrong because he had a plan, a solid plan, that he would say that they're brother and sister, and if they then asked, wow, your beautiful sister, she married, he would say yes, but the husband is in some faraway place, we don't know where he is, he has abandoned her. And then, interestingly enough, that would actually protect and save Sarah because it seems from the Cheskuni that he understands that in that, in that time and place, in that ancient world, to kill a man in order to marry his wife, that was mekubal, that would be acceptable. But to just take a woman who's still married and the husband is still alive somewhere, that they never would have done. To kill him, he would have. But to just take Sarah, if they can't find and kill the husband, they wouldn't have done that. So by saying there's some husband who's undefined and they don't know where he's in in some unspecified location, so ironically and surprisingly as it may sound in our ethical uh, hierarchy, uh, that they wouldn't have done. They wouldn't take her if they couldn't find and kill the husband, and since they wouldn't know who the husband was or where he was, they wouldn't be able to kill her. That was Chizkuni's plan. Avram's plan according to Chizkuni. Sforno says something very interesting, slightly differently. He says Avram was trying to delay and buy time with the hope that when they saw how beautiful Sarah was, not one, but multiple, various Egyptians would all want to marry her. and They'd all be vying for a hand in marriage. And to do so, they'd all be giving Avram various gifts as the older brother, trying to bribe or entice him to give them his sister in marriage, and certainly they never would hurt him this whole time. Plus, while this negotiation was happening, presumably with multiple people, Avram would be able to quickly buy the provisions, and then they'd quickly be able to get out of Dodge, they'd leave the country, everything would be okay. It was a great plan, says the Sforno, but it all fell apart when they got to Egypt, because right away they just took Sarah to Paro's palace, and his whole expected plan never came to fruition. When Avraham was 99 years old, Hashem approaches him, makes a covenant with him, and tells him, His halech lefanai, you should walk before me, veye tamim. You should be tamim. What does that mean to be tamim? Some understand it or translate it as perfect, but it's certainly a vague term, yet undefined in the Torah text, somewhat unclear. And therefore it's fascinating to study a beautiful presentation here in our Parsha from the Beis HaLevi. Beis Levi posits that what this Pasuk is communicating and what the concept of Tamim means in general in Tanakh and in Chazal is Inyin HaTamimus Hu Shiyasa Ratzon HaBorei Velo Yach Kor Lama Kan We do what Hashem wants, we do what Hashem commands and we don't make that dependent on our own personal investigations, our understanding, our analyses 
of the why. We do mitzvot because we're commanded without questioning or trying to understand why. The Beis Halevi brings as support for this definition of the term a medrash in Tehillim, commenting on the Pasuk in Perak Kuf Yud of Tehillim, which says, Ashrei Tmimei Derech, praise are those who are Tmimim, and says the medrash this refers specifically to the Dor HaMidbar. And the medrash elaborates that the Dor HaMidbar, those who received the Torah when they went out of Mitzrayim, they were given various mitzvot. The medrash lists a few of them, for example, Lo Safajel Kedi Bechalei the prohibitions governing the mixing of meat and milk, and says the Medrash, even though this is a mitzvah which you wouldn't necessarily understand at all, certainly not at first blush, but the people did not ask why we can't cook meat and milk together, just immediately they accepted the authority and the binding nature of the mitzvot and the Torah. Says the Beis Alevi, we see here from this Medrash, this idea, that the idea of tamim, the idea of tamimus, is accepting mitzvot even without knowing the reason for them, and even if we did know the reason, not making our observance of mitzvot contingent on those reasons. The Beis Levi then asks, on his own definition, he asks on himself, an obvious and powerful question. Says the Beis Levi, but aren't we obligated, aren't we commanded to study, to understand all the details of mitzvot? Aren't we even commanded, according to some, or encouraged to understand the reasons for mitzvot? So doesn't that contradict this exhortation here in our Parsha and in other sources to be a Tamim, which we're now defining as doing things without knowing the reason, says the Beis Halevi, we have to make a profound, subtle, but significant, nonetheless, distinction between learning and doing. Says the Beis Halevi, in Hachinam, you're 100%. There absolutely is a value and even a mitzvah to study the details and the reasons for mitzvot. Zebchlal limur ha-Torah. Says the Beis Levi, yes, part of the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, very central mitzvah. Part of that central mitzvah is to understand the details and the reasons for mitzvahs. However, says the Beis Levi, we have to make a distinction between when we're studying and when we're performing the mitzvahs. When we study, we want to understand everything, and the more we understand, the better. However, he says, when it comes to doing the mitzvah, about ikar ha'asiyah shalom, when it comes to actually doing the mitzvah, then we do it not because of the reasons, rather, when we're doing the mitzvah, we're doing it not for this or that reason, even if we understand the reason, even if it makes sense to us, it doesn't matter. And we certainly do it even if we don't understand the reason. There's a distinction, says the base Levi, between action and learning, between deed and thinking, if you will. And therefore, we have to, so to speak, live on both planes. When we're learning, yes, study and understand the reasons. But when we're doing and performing the mitzvot, we do it completely disconnected to, and certainly not contingent upon, those mitzvot. The Beis Levi continues and develops this idea with numerous other sources, examples, and proofs. But I want to mention one final one, which to me is so beautiful, which he ends the piece on. And that is that the Medrash, at least in one place, and a Gemara, in Masech Techulin, seems to compare, in a very favorable way, people to animals. We're like a behemoth. And of course, it seems on its face very peculiar, and the question is obvious. In what sense are we like animals, and how could that possibly be a good thing? So to answer this question, the Beis Alevi brilliantly draws a homiletical or even profoundly philosophical explanation from the world of halacha. 
That is the world of Kinyanim, the modes of acquisition. The Gemara in Kedushin and Davchav Beis tells us that one of the modes of acquisition, according to Allah, one of the Kinyanim is known as Meshicha. When you pull or draw uh, whatever property you're purchasing into your property, that affects the Kinyan, the transfer of formal ownership. The Gemara gives an example of an animal. If you physically pull an animal that you've purchased onto your property, that gives it a Kinyan. That, the physical drawing onto your property, that's what makes it yours. The Gemara gives a Another example, which would be even for an Eved, if you would physically bring him onto your property, that would also be a form of a Kenyan. The Gemara, however, also says that there's another way you can fulfill the Kenyan of Mashiach, and that is not physically bringing the animal onto your property, or whatever the, pro- the thing is, but rather if you would call the animal in response to your voice, it walked onto your property, even though you didn't physically drag the animal, but we view it as if the animal is responding to your voice, and therefore we view it as if you brought the animal onto your property. However, in this critical point, says the Gemara, there's a distinction, because when it comes with an Eved, even if you call the Eved and it walks onto your property, the Eved is not considered yours, that's not considered Mashiach. Why? Because a human being, all human beings, even an Eved, do things because they have free choice, free will. They're ba'alei b'chira. Even if you called someone or asked someone to do something, when and if they do it, they're ultimately making that decision on their own. Therefore, we wouldn't view that as you brought the evid onto your property because they responded to your voice. That would be the evid on his own doing it, and that would not be the Kenyan. Therefore, says the Beis in that sense, Chazal compare us favorably to an animal, in the sense that we're like a behemoth. We do mitzvot even when we know the reasons. We're not doing it because of our own thoughts and our own understanding. We're doing it because Hashem called us. And so to speak, in response to His voice, in response to His tzivoy, we are called to follow the mitzvot. That is the highest form of mitzvah observance, says the Beis Alevi. That is what it means to be a tamim. And that's what the Pasuk means here with Avram Avinu. In the latter part of Parshas Lech Lecha, we read about two promises two wonderful promises that Hashem makes to Avram. First, Hashem promises Avram, his children will multiply and be like the stars and the heavens and the sky. What a wonderful promise and a wonderful prediction. And then Hashem continues and says how those children will eventually inherit the land of Eretz Yisrael. However, after that second promise, the wonderful news that Avram receives, he responds somewhat shockingly. And in Perek Tezvav, Pasuk Ches, we read about how Avram responded and said to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Bama Eida Ki Irashana. How can I know that I will inherit the land? How can I be sure that my children will truly and lastingly inherit that land? It seems like, at least at first glance, that Avram is questioning or doubting Hashem's promise that him and his children will inherit the land of Israel. In response to this question, Akash Baruch gives Avram the command to slaughter, to divide some of the animals into various parts. And we then read about the famous bris ben habasarim, the covenant of the parts. In the process, Avram has a nevuah, a prophecy, which is revealed that his children will be exiled and enslaved for 400 years until they eventually return to Eretz Yisrael. There's so much to say about this incredibly important section in the Torah. But I think the most basic question that needs to be addressed is, how do we understand Avraham's question? Can we really take it at face value? Was Avraham doubting? Was Avraham questioning Kaddish Baruch Hu? I think if any of us had done it, it would be surprising. 
If any of our children would do it to us when we promised them something good, we might be taken aback. But Avraham, of all people, the paragon of faith, questioning, doubting HaKadosh Baruch Hu, how can it be? How can we understand this Pasuk? In the words of Chazal, in the Gemara and in the Midrashim, we find two divergent approaches. The first, we find in the Gemara, in Masechta Nadarim, and there, we read about the interpretation of the famed Amora Shmuel, who explains that in fact, as surprising as it is, we should take the Psukim at face value. He refers to Avraham's question and his behavior as Hifriz al-Midosav Shel HaKadosh He went too far. He was chutzpahdik. He was doubting. He lacked faith when he asked this question. Shmuel goes so far as to say that it was as a punishment to this lack of faith, this breach of Derech Eretz and the way Avram questioned and talked to Hashem, that Avram's descendants are punished by being exiled to Mitzrayim. In other words, according to Shmuel, and this is actually the immediate context of the Gemara Nedarim, we would wonder, and we're right to wonder, why did the Jewish people merit, why were they punished, I should say, by being sent to Mitzrayim for such a terrible servitude for what ended up being 200 plus years. So, to be honest, there are numerous answers to that question in the Gemara. But it's to answer that question that Shmuel says, you know why they were punished? Because of Avraham's doubt. Because Avraham doubted the ultimate gift of Eretz Yisrael, his children will not be able to stay in Eretz Yisrael forever. Even after his children, Yaakov and grandchild and great-grandchildren, the Shvatim are living there, eventually a famine will come and they will be removed from the land and held in terrible, terrible servitude in Egypt for 200 plus years. That punishment came and as a result of Avraham's questioning and doubting that we read about in this week's Parsha. However, <clears throat> there is a second approach to Avraham's question, which is far different and far more positive. Rashi actually alludes to this very, very briefly in a few words in his comments to Pasuk Vav. But the original source, which is more elaborate, comes from the Medrash in Parashas Rabbah and Parsha Memdalid. And there, the Tana, Rabbi Hanina, tells us that in fact, you shouldn't take the Pasuk at face value. When Avraham said these words, Amar lo kikare tagar. He was not complaining or doubting Hashem. Don't you know, go with what our first impression was. Rather, he says, Ella, In other words, so ingeniously, Rabbi Hanina explains, Avram wasn't asking, how do I know, Hashem, you will give us this present? Of course, Avram never doubted it. Chas v'shalom. If Hashem said he'd give us a present, Avram had no doubt that he would give it to us. His question was, once you give it to us, how will we merit to hold on to that gift? Even if it's ours, but if we misbehave, if we aren't worthy, Hashem could take it away. But what will I know? How do I know? What can I do to make sure that my children are able to keep the gift? To which the Medrash says, what was Hashem's answer and reply? Amarlo, bikaparos. Don't worry, even if they sin, Hashem says there'll be a mechanism for them to achieve kapara, forgiveness. And there, says Rabbi Hanina, that's why right after this we read about Hashem telling Avram to slaughter animals and to offer karbonos. In other words, it wasn't random. 
Rather, Hashem is telling Avram, just like you are going to offer these karbanos, your children will have an opportunity to offer the karbanos, and as part of that sacrificial service, in that merit, your children will be able to keep Eretz Yisrael. In fact, Rabbi Hanina goes on in some detail to show how each of the different animals mentioned in this section that are part of the Brisbane Ben Basarim correspond to various karbanos that the Jewish people will be able to give throughout the ages to achieve kapara. It's worth noting that there's a parallel to this medrash in the Gemara Megillah on Daflam and Aleph. And there, more directly you see, and more elaborately, Avram asking Hashem, what will I do if my children sin? How will, how will they keep the land? Or will you destroy them like you destroyed Dor HaMabal and Dor HaFlaga? So Hashem says, no, I won't do that. To which Avram responds, well, with what merit? What can I tell my children to do? How can I teach them? What do they need to do in order to avoid that terrible fate? To which Hashem responds, with the Karbanos. And what about if there are no Karbanos anymore and there's no base Mikdash? So there the Gemara says, Hashem told Avram, well, if they read the Psukim, they learn the Karbanos, that'll be sufficient. In other words, we have this second approach from the Gemara and the Medrash. Not Avram doubting Hashem, but rather him trying to understand by what merit we will be able to keep and merit Hashem's gift to us. Even though Avraham is initially mentioned at the end of last week's Torah reading, Avraham's more formal and dramatic entree into the biblical stage begins at the start of this week's Parsha, in Parsha Slachlacha, as we read the famous and still dramatic call, Vayomer Hashem Avraham, Lechlacha Mi'artcha, Umi Mo'aladcha, Umi Beis Avicha, El Ha'aretz Asherareka. Avraham is called to leave his birthplace his homeland, his family, to go to the land which Hashem will show him, of course, taking him eventually to the land of Eretz Yisrael. Moreover, we read about not only the journey of Avram, but eventually the promise to make Avraham and his descendants into a great nation. Avram, you will be my destiny in this world, your family, that your legacy will be to bring Hashem's name to the world, and I will make you great, promises Hashem. This incredible, dramatic, and exciting entree of Avram into history, onto the biblical stage, is of course memorable and consequential. However, the Ramban notes that there seems to be something very peculiar in these psukim. For all that the Torah reveals... What is most striking is what we are not told. We are not told, we are never told, in the Torah text itself, anything about Avraham's life story before this selection. Most importantly, we have never been told what Avraham did to merit this divine chosenness. This Torah speaks about Avraham's future. It never reveals his past. And of course, what is so significant and shocking about this is that, first of all, with other heroes, such as Noah, we are told that he is an Ish Tzadik. We are told his bona fides, his credentials, before we hear about his consequence on the world stage. And secondly, this is a radical shift, as no longer is Hashem dealing with the entire world on a universal level, level but Lech Lecha marks the shift to a more particularistic approach. Hashem's light, Hashem's name will be revealed to the world through a particular person and his family. But we never know, we never learn it all in the Torah text. Why Avraham? Why is he the chosen man? This is the incredibly penetrating question of the Ramban. The Ramban himself gives the following answer. He says, well, of course, we do know much about Ramba, the Ra- Avraham from the Midrashim, all about how he discovered Hashem, 
how he fought with the Ba'alei Avodah of his day, rejecting in a very proactive way, and even a confrontational way, one could say, the Avodah and the paganism of his day, and that made Avram a religious and a spiritual hero. Of course, Ramban realizes that that begs the question. Those stories are wonderful, but they're only in the Medrash. They're not in the Torah text. Why does the Torah itself not cite any of these Midrashim? To which the Ramban answers that generally the Torah is very, very reticent to mention anything that is about Avodah Zarah, anything which is in any way heretical or against the Torah's core and axiomatic beliefs. And therefore, since it's not really crucial to anything in the story, per se, the Torah did not want to mention these stories about Avraham, because willy-nilly they would have required a reference to Avodah Zarah. This is the Ramban's answer. And whether one uh, loves it, or uh, to be honest, I find it a little bit uh, underwhelming, uh, with all the respect, of course, to the Ramban, the Svasemes takes us in a completely different direction, in a direction which I find to be incredibly remarkable, potentially life-altering if one really would internalize the message of the Svasemes, and certainly inspiring. And the predicate of the approach of the Svasemes is a comment of the Zohar HaKadosh. The Zohar HaKadosh tells us that the call of Lech Lecha was actually not exclusively said to Avram Avinu. We've always thought, certainly the simple reading of the Psukim, that Avram was already chosen with those words, Lech Lecha. Says the Zohar, in fact, the words Lech Lecha were said to the entire world. However, in the words of the Zohar, Vayel Inun denayme shinsa b'chorehen v'lyadei v'lo mistaklon. Woe is to those who are sleeping and not seeing or unaware, not hearing and knowing what is going on around them. In other words, says the Svasemes, you see from the Zohar, that the world was approached, the world was on the receiving end. Everyone, the whole universe could have heard the word Lech Lecha. It was a call that went out to anyone. However, no one else heard the call. What made Avraham great, says the Svasemes, as he works off of and develops this idea of the Zohar, what makes Avraham great was that he heard the call. Shama v'kibel, says the Svasemes. He heard it, and he took it as a personal call. He took it as a personal responsibility. Anyone could have heard it, but Avraham did, and he acted on it. The call went out to everyone, but it's Avraham who heard it. And therefore, continues the Svasemes, when just a few psukim later, after Hashem finishes His promise, in Pasuk Dalid we read, Vayelech Avraham, from the moment Hashem called him, Avraham saddled up, and he went on the journey. He heard, and he acted on it. Says the Svasemes, the whole premise of the question was wrong. We asked, why doesn't the Torah tell us why Avraham merited to be chosen? Says the Svasemes, the Torah does tell us why he was chosen. The very fact, the very fact that he heard and acted on Hashem's call, that itself is the reason why he deserved to be chosen. I'm sure, I have no doubt, that Svasemes accepts and believes all of those amazing stories we've learned since we were little kids that are taught in the Medrash. But nevertheless, says Svasemes, Avram could have been rewarded for that. But that's not why he was chosen to be the man, because of that. He was chosen not because of what he had done in the past. He had chosen what he had, he was chosen because of what he did right then. Vayelech Avraham. He heard the call. Shama Vakibel. And he acted on it. Zeh. This itself 
is why he merited. And this, of course, is a lesson, says of Hashemis, for all of us. Hashem is calling often in many profound ways. The question is whether we will be truly students and descendants of Avram, or we too hear the call of Hashem. As Avram and Sarah begin their journey to the land of Israel, we are told that they brought with them as Hanefesh Asher Asu Bacharan, the person or the soul they made in Haran. And the whole phraseology of this part of the Pasuk is obviously very awkward and difficult to understand. And this leads Rashi to quote the famous teaching of Chazal in the Medrash that's an allusion to the fact that Avram Megayers Anashim. That is to say, who were these souls that Avram and Sarah brought with them on the journey? They were people who Avram and Sarah respectively had converted to the belief in Hashem, to monotheism. And they were also part of the journey. They went with Avram and Sarah and family on the way to the land of Israel. Now, in the context of our Parsha and this Rashi and this Medrash, it's clear that we are being taught this message and this teaching as a way of expressing Avram's success, his impact as a religious leader, and his devotion and love of Hashem. However, it's positive when it comes to Avram, but it raises the question, and it behooves us to investigate, that was true for Avram before Matan Torah. But is it still true now, post-Matan Torah? Is it true true even in our day? Is conversion a positive thing? Is it perhaps even a mitzvah? Or are things perhaps slightly more complicated or even ambivalent? So first, to start out, we must acknowledge that there are a number of Gemaras, which seems to paint a very clear and negative attitude towards the process of conversion. For example, the Gemara in Yavamos and Avkoftes tells us that very bad things will befall those people, those Rabbanim, the Beisdin, who accept converts. And the Gemara continues and connects that to an earlier statement of Rabbi Chelbo, who says that the phenomenon, the reality of converts of Gerim is very difficult and painful for the Jewish people, like having some kind of a leprous sore on our skin, kisapachas. And the curiosity of the Gemara using that metaphor, notwithstanding, we'll have to leave that for another time, but it's clear that the Gemara here is conveying a negative approach and a negative attitude towards the process of accepting converts. Additionally, Earlier in Mesech Zayin, the Gemara describes the process of what would happen or what should happen if a prospective convert comes to a Beisdin, comes to a rabbi and says, I want to convert. And rather than doing what we would expect Avram did, which is run, give the person a hug, accept them, teach them, rather, says the Gemara, on the contrary, we question her, her sincerity, we want to find out what they're really motivated by, and we go to great lengths to try to dissuade them from converting by telling them how hard Jewish life is, mitzvahs are so hard, anti-Semitism is difficult. We try to talk them out of it. Eventually, if they persist and they come back and back again, so then we actually go ahead with the conversion. But it's an unmistakable impression that we get from the Gemara, clearly conveyed that this is not a good thing. All of that, however, should be contrasted with the fact that there are a number of sources that take a much more positive view towards Geras, and some that go so far as to even claim there's a mitzvah to accept converts. The Tajbeits, one of the later Rishonim, points to a Gemara, Masechti Yivamos, on Daf Mem Zayin, the very same Gemara that we previously saw about giving the Ger, the prospective Ger, a hard time, but nevertheless, says the Gemara, once they pass the test, they cross the threshold, and we want to actually convert them, the Gemara says, Malin Oso Miyad, Referring to a male convert, we go, go ahead with the circumcision right away. 
One minute we're trying to talk him out of it, the next minute we're already starting the process of conversion. And the Gemara, you know, recognizes the kind of whiplash here. Why are we going so fast? My time, why does it have to be right away? Says the Gemara, because this is based on a principle of Shihoi Mitzvah Lo Mashinon. We have an opportunity to do a mitzvah, we should not delay. <clears throat> Says the Tashbates, it's black on white. Could not be clearer. The Gemara refers to the process of conversion as a mitzvah. In fact, a, a, applies the principle of don't delay a mitzvah. Obviously, the Gemara is assuming, as clear as can be, the actual conversion, the process, is considered a mitzvah. So not a negative thing, and in fact, even a mitzvah. The Tosas HaRosh also says the same thing. It's a mitzvah. But he uses a different proof from the fact that there is a bracha that we say before the circumcision of a ger, in the formulation of the bracha, we state quite clearly that there is a mitzvah that we are commanded to do to be involved in this process of conversion. Yet again, we see there's a mitzvah. And what is that mitzvah to convert a person? Where does that fit in? So the Harash explains it's part of the mitzvah of loving the ger. The Torah in many places talks about the mitzvah and the obligation to be exquisitely sensitive, respectful, and even love a convert. Now the psukim seem to be clearly talking about someone who is already converted. The Chiddush of the Tosos Harash is that once a person has crossed the threshold, once they have made it clear and demonstrated their sincerity and their worthiness of conversion, then even though they're not even technically a convert yet, we can already apply the principle of Havasager to the prospective convert, and we are already obligated, because we love that person, to help him or her convert. Fascinating. The Ravid also suggests that there is a mitzvah, but doesn't really explain the nature of the mitzvah. But very curiously, when he asks on himself, how do I know there's a mitzvah? What's the source of the mitzvah? He quotes the Pasuk in our parsha. Now it's not clear exactly what he means because he doesn't elaborate on it. But many Achronim point out it's difficult to understand at face value. After all, this Pasuk does not seem to be a halachic source. It's a narrative, a gothic uh, piece of information. It's from Koda Matan Torah. The fact that there could be a mitzvah lidoros based on this Pasuk, which the Ravi clearly is saying, is hard to understand. And even though we don't understand exactly what he means, we have to acknowledge the Ravid says it. More recently, one of the Achronim of Perlau also thinks that there's a mitzvah of accepting a ger, and he thinks it's based on the mitzvah of Ahavas Hashem. Part of our love of Hashem is to accept converts, and it's based on a statement that the Medrash says that part of loving Hashem is bringing other people to love Hashem, and the Medrash itself quotes Avram Avinu, because Hashem because Avram loved Hashem so much, he wanted more people to know Hashem, to believe in Hashem. And we have to be like Avram, and part of our love of Hashem has to bring more converts to Judaism. Lastly, Rav Menashe Klein, a very recent Achron, suggests that once a convert is interested in converting, there's a mitzvah on him to finish the job, and a mitzvah on us to help him finish the job. A really intriguing idea. So we started off by seeing sources that clearly were negative, but we then saw some very fascinating sources that are positive about conversion.